Welcome to the Doctors in Politics podcast. Our first episode called Let's Change How We Practice Healthcare is our conversation with Dr. Christine Mann, running in Texas's 31st Congressional District, and Dr. Pratish Gandhi, running in Texas's 10th Congressional District. for joining us tonight. Um, My name is Donna Kim Murphy. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Doctors in Politics. Uh, Tonight we have Dr. Pratesh Gandhi and Dr. Christine Mann joining us. Um, I wanted to spend the first few minutes here telling our audience a little bit about our organization. Um, And I will briefly introduce myself and then we will hear from our candidates and then just jump into the questions that we have for the next 60 minutes. So Doctors in Politics is a political action committee uh, that supports and encourages more doctors to run for Congress, believing that at this moment, doctors are uniquely positioned to champion the best care for patients and be a driving force to heal America's healthcare system. We believe that health policy should go beyond conversations about only health insurance to the broader view that all policy affects health. We support Democratic and independent physician candidates who advance a vision of affordable, quality, patient-centered health care. We are profiling 10 candidates to watch in 2020. Looking ahead, we will conduct a national candidate search to identify 50 doctor candidates to run for Congress in 2022. Understanding that running for public office at this level is competitive, we will mobilize, amplify, and support these doctors to step into their urgently needed role as public stewards. The four issues that our organization champions are, and this is through our candidates, are quality health care for everyone in the United States, gun violence studied as a public health crisis, women's medical decisions free of politics, and climate change is viewed as a serious health concern. So um, a a small group of us came together just a few weeks ago and um, decided that it was time for doctors to basically have a seat at the the proverbial table. Um, A couple of us actually had run for public office before. Um, I'm one of those people. I ran for local office in Pearland, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston. Um, I, you know, had been for a while uh, quite active as an advocate, an organizer, an activist, um, and I'm also a physician scientist. That's my day job. Um, And I felt that Honestly, I mean, the, the way I've kind of looked at change in systems, right, um, is, is uh, a bit like how we look at evolution, which is a process that happens because there are external forces that drive the organism to evolve. Um, and, and my view had been for some time that um, really you only affect change as a force that is external to the system. But what I realized over time is that you do, in fact, have to have elements internal to that system that are receptive to that pressure. Um, if, if that pressure is not perceived internally, then the system or the organism does not evolve. And so I thought it was really important for doctors to actually run for public office and to hold those elected seats. Um, and that's what motivated me to join Doctors for Politics. So I'm, I'm going to now pass this over to Pratesh and give him a couple of minutes to introduce himself and to share with us his vision for healthcare. First, I want to say just I'm, I'm 
thrilled uh, that you all have come together to start this organization. I couldn't agree more with your sentiment uh, on, on what is needed for change this time. So, so thank you for, for having me. Thank you for having all of us here to have this really important conversation. Uh, just by way of background, uh, my name is uh, Pritesh Gandhi. Uh, I'm a dad. I've got three young kids. Uh, I am a son of immigrants, uh, born right here in Texas, in Houston. Uh, and I'm currently the Associate Chief Medical Officer of a federally qualified health center here in East Austin, where I'm Director of Adult Medicine and practice as an in adult internist. I'm trained in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Uh, we serve about 20,000 uninsured and underinsured Central Texans, and I've, I've spent my entire life in public service. Uh, and particularly over these last few months, we have seen firsthand the failures of the Trump administration to deliver, uh, deliver uh, life-saving medical equipment, supplies, uh, put together a supply chain that can truly help uh, folks that are on the front lines of this crisis. Mm. This is, of course, no surprise to anyone here. For me, my life have, has been spent fighting for the dignity of people. 15 years ago, after a background in economics, international affairs, I pivoted. I was working for a year in India, uh, in Bombay, uh, in a, working in a landfill uh, uh, predominantly on access to clean water. Uh, that year as a Fulbright scholar changed the entire way I look at systems. I think what we all know is that systems are designed to produce the outcomes that they do. And if we cannot get at root causes, if we can't get at why systems are designed how they are, we will not be able to effectively make change. And so this, this drove me to go back to school, got my public health degree, my medical degree. In 2012, after Sandy Hook started this uh, national uh, a group at that time, Doctors Against Gun Violence, uh, based in the state uh, and crisscross the state, fighting for a, a public health approach uh, to gun violence. This was right after Sandy Hook. And that movement uh, pushed me back home to Texas, where in 2018, at the height of family separation, I organized one of the largest rallies in the country in uh, Tornillo, uh, the, that uh, border town right outside El Paso. And we stood for those children. And so for me, look, I sat down with my wife last year we sat down together and we said, look, we are, we are children of immigrants. We've got three young children ourselves. Uh, I'm a primary care physician for the uninsured and underserved. And we have a moral obligation to tell the stories of the people we serve and put people and science and dignity above partisanship. That's the kind of campaign we're running. That's what I'm excited to talk with you all about tonight. Very briefly about healthcare. My entire philosophy on healthcare is driven by a quote by uh, Wendell Berry. Rats and roaches live by the competition of, so of supply and demand, uh, but it is the privilege of human beings to live under the laws of justice and mercy. Uh, we'll get into that in detail later tonight, but suffice to say that money should never be an object to be able to access care in this country. Uh, it is a human right, uh, and I look forward to having that conversation. Excellent. It's great to have you here, Patesh. Thank you. Um, Christine, please um, share with us a little bit about yourself. So thank you guys also for having me and for starting this group. And I love what both of you guys said about systems. Um, I'm a family practitioner in a small private practice in um, Cedar Park, which is just north of Austin. Uh, the district that I am in came close to flipping in the last cycle. And so uh, it's a great opportunity for a pickup in Texas. It's one of the seven targeted seats in the state of Texas. And so 
I've been involved politically for quite a while. I started advocating for universal health care around 2009 when we were still having discussions about the ACA. And I've been working with various groups since then. I've been both politically involved and activism uh, involved for several years. Um, I was the leader of a group called Wilco Indivisible, which sprang up right after the 2017, 2016 election. Um, I've been down to the border thanks to Donna and connections through uh, groups that I am in online. I also belong to a group called Doctors for Camp Closure, and I have participated in a couple of protests uh, with that group trying to shut down the detention facilities that uh, we are, are sending immigrants to as they try to seek asylum in the United States. So um, I, I really feel strongly, Donna, what you were talking about, about that systems pressure. Being an activist for the last several years, I got to the point where I was like, this isn't working. Nobody is listening. And I've got to get on the inside to do this. And so I ran in 2018. That was my first run for Congress. I've been working to help get other people elected in my district for almost a decade. Um, then I stepped up in 2018 to do it. I made it into the Democratic runoff in my district and uh, did not win that runoff and immediately jumped back in, starting to do political work in the district to um, you know, keep pushing forward to, to prepare for this run in 2020. And uh, this time I am determined to make it all the way. And I'm, I'm super excited to be a part of politics. I absolutely love what I do. I say that every time I have one of these events, my gosh, I just want to keep doing this forever. Um, so I'm thrilled to be here. In terms of healthcare, my bottom line, and this is what I've been talking about since 2009, is universal healthcare coverage. Without regard to pre-existing conditions, your job situation, where you live in the country, um, you should be able to start your own business and not have to worry about healthcare coverage. My preference is with a single payer system, but I will have a discussion with anyone, anywhere about anything, any system that gets us to 100% coverage guaranteed for everybody in this country. Excellent. We are so lucky to have both of you uh, with us here tonight. Um, and I think it was so fitting that we started actually with two candidates from a state that is quite, that that is considered um, kind of a bellwether for, for the rest mm -hmm. of the country. Um, so let's just jump into our, our um, questions here. We're going to have about 10 minutes of, of really um, fast uh, moving questions. Some of them are kind of lighthearted and others are a little bit more serious. Um, but the rules of this, um, this section um, are that you have you have to answer the question in five seconds or less. And I'm going to try <laughs> to do that. <laughs> um, so, so just a few words. Um, and you'll hopefully have some time to elaborate on some of your positions uh, more substantially uh, when we move to kind of longer form questions and also questions that we take from the audience tonight. Um, all right, so let's start with uh, Pratesh. Uh, what has been your go-to snack during your campaign? Oh, gosh. Uh, almonds? Almonds? <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. And Christine, how about you? Chocolate chip cookies. Fantastic. <laughs> um, Christine, what quote motivates you? 
Um, no, man, there's so many. The one that I have on my page is, um, it's actually from the Transformers and I'm not going to be able to rem- remember it right now. I know everyone makes a, this funny face when I, um, when I talk <laughs> about it and I can't remember it. I will try and remember it before we leave tonight. All right, Pratesh, what about you? Uh, I said one at the beginning about uh, a Wendell Berry quote, but the, the, the second one that drives me is uh, Dr. King talks about he talked about the fierce urgency of now, uh, mm. and that I, that is what drives this campaign, this understanding of, of, of how people live their lives. Absolutely, yep. The moment that we're in, especially uh, with uh, the post-COVID era also. Um, what is your greatest accomplishment outside of medicine, Uh Personal accomplishment, aside from uh, having three wonderful little kids, uh, it is to overcome a severe stutter as a child. Uh, like mm-hmm. Vice President Biden, you can't tell now because public speaking is my currency. I had a severe stutter. And uh, my father made me join the speech and debate squad when I was in ninth grade. I went to speech therapy three times a week since age five uh, to overcome it. I speak at the local camp here for stutterers. Uh, it is by far my singular accomplishment and uh, something that I, I deal with to this day. And Christine, how about you? I am an extreme introvert. So being out of the campaign trail and communicating with people in a format that has been way outside of my comfort zone and getting comfortable with it has been a huge thing for me, a huge accomplishment. Wow. Um, who, who was your defining icon of your youth, Christine? My mom. Uh, she worked multiple jobs and raised kids after being a divorced single mother and her work ethic drives me. I, she's where I get my work ethic. And Pavesh. My grandfather, he was, uh, an immigrant came to this country for a better life for his family and treated every human being with dignity, every human being, every interaction till the day he died. Uh, and that is how I've modeled my life. Pathet, who, who has, uh, or what has been your greatest personal challenge during the pandemic? Uh, I think balancing work and my kids, safety for my children. You know, my daughter came in the room today, no joke. She walked into the room and she said, dad, uh, she said 500,000 people have died from this virus. Now she's six, she got the numbers wrong. And right after that, my second child, my five-year-old said, dad, what does Memorial Day mean? Back to back, these are my kids. Uh, And balancing that safety of my kids, help having them understand what's happening. It's been hard, it's been a challenge. Christine, how about you? What has been your greatest challenge during the pandemic? Um, tamping down rumors that pop up. It feels like I'm playing whack-a-mole all the time with the conspiracy theories that are coming up constantly. And as a candidate, I get asked about those conspiracy theories just nonstop. Um, people send me information and, hey, is this for real? And I'm like, oh my gosh. So it's been really hard. Um, yeah. I mean, they say that the, the COVID infodemic is, is as, um, malignant, right? As, as the yes. Um, Christine, what is the most unusual fact about your congressional district? 
Um, that it is one of the most gerrymandered districts, but it is so compact. It only takes me 45 minutes to get to each part of the district. So it's super gerrymandered because they, they carved out a bunch of uh, Democratic precincts. But it's easy for me to, to see and, and interact with everybody in the district. Wow. When there's not that. a pandemic. So yeah, right, right. <laughs> How about your district? Look, this is also a gerrymandered district. The, the Republican Party uh, went haywire in the early 2000s here in Central Texas. And so this is what we see is, is this. Um, uh, it takes three hours to go from corner to corner. But I think the biggest fact that I like about this district is that, or that I always note for people, is that the incumbent, Representative McCall, in the middle of a drought in Austin, uh, his family was responsible for more water use than any other private uh, citizen here in Austin. This was a couple of years ago. And uh, I think that's it sort of tells you what you need to know about the district and the incumbent. So, well, um, what is the most, this is for Prepesh. What is the most, uh, no, actually, what, what is one thing that you wish that you would have known before you ran for office? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be honest, uh, about a few months before running for Congress, I was going through my Facebook and just deleting folks that I hadn't talked to in years. I went through my phone list and just cleaned up all my contacts. And then I then I ran for Congress and I realized, well, shoot, <laughs> I got to talk to a whole bunch of people. Uh, and 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 I, I wish I would have uh, thought that through uh, the, the months prior to running for Congress. Funny. Christine, how about you? Yeah, so um, we're writing a book about this because there are so many things that you just don't know about what happens when you're running for Congress. Uh, but I think the number one thing would be how challenging it is, even within your own party, to get people to hear you and listen to you and understand what you're all about. Mm. And I found my quote whenever you're ready. Shoot. What is the quote? Yes. <laughs> this is op Optimus Prime. Fate rarely calls upon us at a moment of our choosing. Wow. Yeah. And that, that just meant a lot to me yeah. when I was first running because of how desperate the situation was in the country. And um, so, yeah. That's great. Um, Christine, this is a good question to give to you yeah. first, I think. Is there any difference to you between an activist and an advocate? Yes. Um, you can advocate and not put yourself it at risk. It's, for me, activism means putting yourself and your body and your life into situations where you might be in harm's way. Um, it takes advocacy one step further. There's, there's no, I'm not saying that advocacy is lesser. It's just different. Okay. And uh, Pratesh, how do you feel about that? Is there any difference to you between the two? There is probably an academic difference that I uh, am not qualified to, to talk through. Uh, what I would say is that uh, you really need both advocacy and activism to be able to make political change because it's with advocacy and activism uh, that you build political power. And ultimately, we can't do anything without political power. So that to me is, is, a, is a very clear balance between both, both of those two uh, avenues. Excellent. Um, I have so many more like shorter form questions here, but we've, we're running out of time. So let me ask you one that I think um, it, 
it um, kind of speaks to um, doctors in politics. Uh, Pratesh, name three ways in which race comes to bear on health. Let's look at the news today, right? A black man couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if folks don't think that uh, generational stress matters, uh, we have all the examples we need. And so racism affects stress and cortisol levels, way one. Way two, uh, historic inequities uh, in, 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 for example, in East Austin, where folks don't have access to education uh, for a variety of reasons, right? Education matters. Uh, a third area is look at the disparities that we're seeing now with this pandemic. 30% uh, of Austin uh, is the Hispanic population, 60% of those hospitalized because of access to care. Uh, again, a lot of it driven by inequities. And so we could speak all night. We could speak all night on, on implications of disparities because of race and ethnicity. Right. And the, this issue is actually not among our four issues um, in doctors uh, in politics. But the reason I bring it up is that, um, you know, our, our vision is, is a very intersectional vision. And um, and I think that race intersects with basically everything. Um, question. Uh, so, Christine, how about for you? What are three uh, ways in which race affects health in, in your judgment? So um, race and racism is systemic. And and when we go back to it, I can name three separate things, but it all ties back together that virtually every system in the United States has a racism core, a systemic racism core. And that long-term stress on a person, as Pratesh so rightly pointed out, raises cortisol levels. There's a uh, a statistic that every seven minutes in America, a Black American dies prematurely because of a lifetime of stress on their bodies. We can measure differences in cortisol levels at about age 20 in people. And at age six, we can already detect racial bias in children. So it's that lifelong exposure to systemic racism, whether it's housing where you can't afford a a house that is free from pests and um, pesticides and chemicals to um, banking systems where you can't get a loan to employment, where you can't get a, a job interview. All of those things accumulate and feed into the poor health status of people who are of color. And then you you layer on top of it something like this pandemic where there's an acute need for care. We don't have universal health care coverage in the United States. So people who are black and brown have less access to care. And on top of that, you have uh, a system where uh, black and brown people are often our frontline workers, um, people who have to go back to work because they don't have the financial resources to distance and stay at home. And it's just a perfect storm for pitting these people at, at higher risk. Um, so I'm, I'm going to move us into the longer form questions. I did a very bad job of moderating and keeping you guys to five second answers <laughs> because your answers were so you know, interesting. (laughs) I wanted to hear them. Um, Let's move now to the long form questions where you actually will get a full minute to answer the question. Um, I will start with you, uh, Pradesh. What is one domain of policymaking that people don't ordinarily see as related to health that you, you see through a health lens? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we just touched on this, but it's important. We 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 cannot fall into the trap of talking about health insurance as just health, right? I mean, these so the big domain that I would look at are these social determinants of health, which I know for many of the viewers as part of this group, this is what we live every day, right? This is my world, social determinants of health, poverty, how all these things intersect. But look at some basics, right? In Austin, for example, and in Houston, if you're a black or brown child, you have a two to three times higher rate of living in a food insecure households. We see these disparities in poverty as well. We realize that there are eligibility gaps in WIC, eligibility gaps in SNAP, eligibility gaps. Um, there are gaps in, in actually getting your earned income tax uh, credit done, right? And all of these things are tools that are and should be leveraged uh, to deal with so many of these issues. But we we never talk about these issues at the policy level uh, in an intersectional way. We talk about it in their own silos. Um, this is why it matters to have uh, public health professionals, to have physicians, to have others in these leadership roles, because we live at that intersection in our clinics, right? Like in my clinic, we have partnered with a local uh, group to do earned income tax credit and taxes for our patients, because we know that it reduces poverty, right? We partner with groups to do um, uh, food stamp signups, SNAP signups in our clinic waiting rooms. We do social determinants of health screening uh, because we understand the value of those things. So that's that's the domain, SDOH. Excellent. And Christine, how about you? I had a discussion about this on Twitter recently where a prominent physician who I follow said that he really didn't like talking about politics in the couple of minutes that he had with a patient in an exam room. And I replied to him, I said, everything it revolves around politics. Every single thing you do, that person who's in your office for diabetic uh, eye exam, something in politics can affect their ability to get to your office. The fact that they have diabetes in the first place, everything is structured around that. So the, the short answer is everything has to do with politics, but I'm going to give you an example of one thing that people don't really think about uh, and how that relates to health. Let's talk about transportation. If you live in a place that does not have public transportation and you can't afford a car, you might not be able to get to the grocery store where you have fruits and vegetables available. You're left shopping at a convenience store where your food options are uh, snacks and chips and sodas. If you don't have the ability to get to a job to be able to pay for the things that you need, your medicines and your doctor's visits and so forth. So it, transportation. Yeah. But it, I mean, and just to add in there uh, to what Dr. Mann was saying, being political does not mean that you have to be partisan. I think for so many of us that work in the nonprofit sector, we shy away because you're, you know, you're in a nonprofit. You can't be uh, partisan, but political, that is, we, we've got to advocate for our, the people we serve. And so I think that is, that's been a huge lesson learned uh, for so, so many that work in the sector. Um, Christine, um, let's start with you here. How can we leverage this moment, uh, namely the coronavirus crisis, to reimagine a more equitable health system? We've, we who work in medicine, and, and particularly people who work with underserved populations like what Pratesh does, we already know the inequities that are in the healthcare system, but this pandemic has shown a spotlight on how bad it is, how 
people have access to care in some areas, they don't have access to care in other areas, how social determinants of health that we've been talking about affect whether or not a person comes down with COVID-19 because they are a frontline worker and they can't avoid their job. We already know that Black and Brown Americans don't have as much savings because they haven't been paid the same amount of wages that uh, white Americans have. So they can't afford to be off work and take care of their kids at home and not go to their job. So this pandemic has sh shined a light on not just healthcare disparities, but uh, disparities across the board in all the systems that we have in the United States and how they feed into um, our health status. So uh, I, I think that we need to, as doctors, leverage that to affect change. And Pratesh, how about you? I think Dr. Mann points out very, uh, and rightfully so, that our safety net has been systemically dismantled uh, by those in leadership over the last few years. Um, and when we opened our eyes in the middle of a pandemic, we realized, well, crap, uh, <laughs> everyone affected, uh, there's nowhere to go. People are hungry. Well, damn straight people are hungry. One in seven Texans were food insecure before the pandemic. People are moving into poverty. No joke, 20% of kids lived in poverty in the state of Texas before this pandemic. People are having unequal access to care. No surprise for black women, twice as high of a maternal mortality rate than white women in, in our state. People don't have uh, access to care, broadly speaking. Of course not. We have the highest percentage of uninsured in the United States here in Texas. This is no, this is no surprise. We've destroyed our safety net in the name of uh, economic independence and whatever else the Republican Party would have you believe. And now we're surprised when we wake up in the middle of a pandemic that if folks need help and that they're one or two paychecks away. That's the whole reason why many of us two years ago, me included, were testifying at the state capitol on paid sick leave because we know that if paid sick leave was a national policy in 2010, 7 million cases and 1,500 deaths would have been averted. Uh, and the United States is always last in line to do what's right for people. So um, anyhow, don't get me started on this pandemic. Right. Uh, it, is, it is just an absolute failure of this style of, of, mm -hmm. of politics. Uh, and it's and, and we're seeing it now. Mm -hmm. Pratesh, how do you think um, we can occupy the political arena as physicians while still maintaining the public's trust? Yeah, I, I think that we... We, we bring science-driven uh, leadership wherever we go. We talk facts. We talk figures, right? Last week, uh, I went on CNN and, and, and we talked about uh, hydroxychloroquine and that Lancet study that came out that showed with 15,000 patients uh, taking that drug, 60,000 patients who weren't. It was an observational study. So, of course, it wasn't randomized controlled trial, but it was pretty large, as large as like four of the prior trials put together uh, and demonstrated that, frankly, there was not benefit from the drug. In fact, there was some harm associated with it, right? We have to be able to tell that story. In fact, we have an obligation to do that. And we can do that without having to be, um, without having to be biased, right? We can be objective. We can amplify the stories of the patients that we see, right? All of us here, um, we have a clear line of sight into the vulnerabilities and challenges and obstacles and resiliency of people we serve because we see it in our exam rooms. Um, we have therefore an obligation to tell those stories uh, at, at the highest levels of government. Christine, what, do you, what about you? What do you think? 
I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, there was some information that came out, I don't know, a couple of years ago uh, about um, people in Kentucky who hated Obamacare, but loved Connect, uh, the Connect Kentucky version of the Affordable Care Act, They, which was exactly the same thing, that they just were so averse to that term Obamacare and to think that o- President Obama gave health care. And I bring that story up because my version of this is meeting people where they're at. Uh, what I do in my office, and I've done forever, is I talk about how they can access care And my go-to example is colonoscopies. I've had so many people over the years say, oh, I really need to get a colonoscopy, but I don't think my insurance is going to cover it. And I'll say, they have to. That was one of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act is that your insurance must cover your screening colonoscopy at 100% with no out-of-pocket expense. So I think meeting people where they're at, talking about the things that are directly of concern to them is how we retain that credibility, yet bring that information to them about how we can be um, more uh, of an advocate for them in Congress. That's great. I hope if nothing else, like physicians who are tuning into this are kind of taking mental notes <laughs> about how we <laughs> use our, our discussions with our patients. Um, I talk about politics in my office all the time, and I have for <laughs> years. I can give a tutorial if anyone needs it. <laughs> um, uh, Christine, I, I love this question. Um, what do you hope will emerge from the Bernie-Biden collaboration? I was so excited to see the, um, the committees that they put together to um, influence the platform for the Democratic Party. There was some really interesting picks that would never have come about without Bernie Sanders and his um, people being around. Uh, I was always a Hillary Clinton fan. I respect Bernie Sanders. Um, and I, I like that he brings uh, uh, something to the conversation that needs to be said. Um, so that collaboration, I think if we can bring together people who really want to move forward more quickly and join with people who are a little bit more cautious, that that's a winning combination for taking some steps forward from here. Excellent. And what do you think, uh, Pratesh, about the collaboration yeah. between the two? Sure. Uh, you know, I am uh, was a big Hillary Clinton fan. I'm a big supporter of uh, Joe Biden right now, obviously. Uh, but six years ago, I had heard Senator Sanders speak and was inspired by one of his talks mm-hmm. on inequity. And so inspired that I gave a grand rounds at Tulane in 2015, in 2015 on how inequity uh, affects health outcomes and did a comparison of inequity in our country uh, uh, by income. And frankly, even in our state, the United States, Texas is one of the worst in terms of income inequity. Uh, and then when you compare that to child well-being, we're essentially at the bottom. And then when you look at the Gini coefficient, which is this marker of inequity, and you look at the United States compared to the other top 50 developed countries in the world, we're at the bottom of inequity there. We're not surprisingly at the bottom of health outcomes there. I was inspired by that work of Senator Sanders. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that he and his coalition can inspire so many more. Uh, to talk about these issues in a way that isn't just lip service, but in a way that leads to true and meaningful policy change. 
Love that. You're giving me chill bumps. <laughs> we are we are stronger together in this fight. Yes. We are stronger together. And that's Absolutely. what this, this Bernie Biden coalition is a winning coalition. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think that's true, of course, like outside of our profession as well. But I will, um, you know, use the opportunity to say that part of what we want to do in Doctors in Politics is actually um, build community among physicians who, who have this kind of worldview um, right. to bring us together and to build um, a, you know, a political coalition, basically, of, of physicians, yeah. yeah, who share these ideas. Um, Pradesh, why do you think that doctors have historically been so resistant to engaging in politics, and uh, how do you see that changing? Well, I, let's take a step back and, and just note that doctors have advocated for their patients. I think that 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 it may it may not be all, all, all always clear and in the front of people's minds. But I mean, let's think back to the start of the health center movement. Jack Geiger, Dr. Jack Geiger started this health center in the middle of the Delta. And I think for those of us, we've probably heard this story a million times, but in the face of overwhelming malnutrition, he started writing prescriptions for food in the middle of the Delta, you know, decades ago. That was advocacy. Physicians, healthcare professionals, others have been on the front lines doing this work. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now, though, is that we haven't accrued enough political power to actually change some of these structures. This is what these are what these conversations are about. Right. I, if, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a at a training session for organizers and uh, this gentleman came in from El Paso, West Texas. He was he's a trained organizer. He was coming in to train us. And on a Sunday afternoon in a church, uh, he slammed his fist on the table and he asked, why do we organize? And he slammed his fist again. He slammed his fist again. He said, we organize for political power. I think that for so many of us, we have seen the deleterious effects of, of government policy that has damaged our patients. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is what we do now. We have got to gain political power to improve the well-being of our patients and their communities. Christine, what do you think? Why have we been so resistant in the past and how can we change that? It, it, it's always said in America that the two things you can't talk about are politics and religion. And I think doctors have uh, found it uncomfortable to have conversations uh, about politics and in the, about their political view. We, we present ourselves as um, just unbiased sources of information and something that all patients can rely on and we don't want to... Um, make it uncomfortable for patients to be able to be open and honest with us uh, in the office. And that's a, an advantage that those of us who are in primary care have, because I've built relationships with people over uh, 20 years. I've got Republicans who come to me and say, I will definitely vote for you because I know you and I trust you and you've been my doctor forever. Um, I think more doctors are getting involved uh, more recently um, I think it has to do with uh, the younger generations of doctors who are coming out. Um, they are much more socially aware. I think that uh, medical schools are teaching more about these social determinants of health and doctors are realizing, well, me as my own individual doctor in this office, I can't change much with that. But if I become politically involved and I get involved in those systems, maybe I can. Excellent. Um why do you think, Christine, that doctors are uniquely positioned to lead in Congress? The training that we have positions us to do this work. We are used to being inundated with vast amount of information, synthesize it quickly, and come up with solutions for this vast amount of information. On top of that, we are used to 
being able to judge the validity of information that is put in front of us. Uh, it is my job every day to look at all sorts of data and evidence and to make a decision about what makes sense and what doesn't and synthesize that and put it into terms that my patient can understand. The other piece of it is that I have to talk people into doing things that they don't want to do all day, every day. Have to convince people to take blood pressure medicine and get their colonoscopies. That's another skill that we have as doctors that we can use when we are in those rooms negotiating with other people. Yeah. And I think to add on there, uh, we know how to work in a team, right? When, I, when I'm taking care of a patient in the clinic, um, let's say a patient who has diabetes, the A1C, a marker of, of diabetes control is not where it needs to be. It's not me in the room. It is me. It is a nutritionist. It's a social worker. It is the nurse. It is the health educator. It is the community health worker. Uh, we are leveraging a team to do what is right and just for this patient and their family. Uh, I think people have forgotten at times in leadership how to work in teams. Don't understand how to reach out of your own silo and work with other folks in different in different fields entirely. Uh, I, th that is a that is a clear value uh, that physicians in particular bring uh, to leadership, and something that's sorely needed in Washington. Excellent, um, Kapesh. How uh, will you explain to your constituents that federal dollars should address? Our chronically medically underserved border communities, given that your district actually is not at the border. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the health and well-being of our neighbors matters. Uh, it matters because we believe in dignity. Uh, we believe in equity. We believe that uh, the children in those border communities will end up leading our businesses and our uh, and our stores and our factories and our educational institutions. And that we are uh, not to you know wax here. Uh, we are as strong, really, as our as our as our weakest, most vulnerable communities. Uh, we have forgotten this sense of fellowship. I think um, when you look at data uh, in this decade compared to past decades, we are at a historic high in terms of loneliness that we feel as communities. Um, our neighborhood ties have seemed to have frayed. Uh, and we need to rebuild. We need to rebuild that. Uh, and I think that starts from understanding our shared human experience um, and having a dignity-driven conversation. That's where yeah. I'd start. I know that you've been uh, to the border with your visit to Tornillo. Um, I'm sure you've been in other instances as well. Um, Christine, I, I know that you've been <laughs> because I organized for you to, to, you to go. Yes. Um, so for you, how would you talk to your own constituents about that? That it's a topic that doesn't seem to be necessarily relevant to them, right? Yeah, well, you know, everything Pratesh said resonates with a lot of people. Um, I, I'm in a district that is largely Republican. It has been a Republican stronghold for a while. So in addition to talking about the um, moral imperative to take care of people who are on our soil, I also talk about the financial impacts. Sometimes you have to reach people with their concerns. And, and a lot of Republicans are worried that their money is going to be wasted and they are not going to get anything from it. That's a, a huge issue 
among the Republican side of the constituency. And so I often talk about the fact that we already take care of these people. We already pay money for them to get care. We just do it in the most expensive way that we possibly can because they end up using uh, resources when they are in dire straits, going to a hospital or an emergency room instead of being cared for along the way. And so I think you can make both of those arguments, the moral piece of it, as well as the how it directly affects our uh, systems uh, in the United States and how we're already paying to house these people and to care for these people. We're just doing it in the most expensive way that we possibly can. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. This. Um the way you convince people who, as, as you say, don't necessarily see the moral argument or they don't see these people as um, uh, deserving of the moral argument. Right. Um, and, and so you do, I agree with you that you have to meet them where you are, but like I have, you know, I just actually got into a conversation with a friend of mine about this um, who is undocumented and he, um, you know, it, it's really actually uh, offensive, you know, to him that people would talk about um, immigrants in, in terms of their economic utility. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I agree with that. I think it's, it's important always to kind of couch this as like, you know, this, this is maybe the argument that appeals to you, but understand what is problematic about that. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, I think the only way to change them, right? Like you want to reach them, but then you want to change the way they're looking at this, this issue. Um, It's a tight, it's a tight rope to walk. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and you um, have to feel, you have to kind of feel people out as you're having the conversation, you know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, so this is a question um, that I think is really relevant for this election year, this historic election year. And that is um, that in the state of Texas, we are we are continually actually trying to um, suppress the vote. <laughs> and this moment is no different. We're trying to use COVID as, as a reason to restrict ver- voting further. Um, there has been an attempt to expand vote by mail uh, for those under the age of 65 um, because of COVID. Um, what are each of you doing uh, to, to further that fight? Uh, Pratesh, we can start with you. Great. Uh, you know, I spoke about this today with the Houston Chronicle uh, I tweeted about it later today. You know, the the state came out with guidance. Get this: the state came out with came out with guidance on how to vote safely at your polling location. It's an eight page PDF document that outlines the safety precautions that need to. You got to bring with you a bottle of sanitizer. You've got to do this. You got to wipe down this. Maybe you should consider this. I don't know what planet uh, folks think that are that voters are 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 on and what resources they have. The reality is that much in this guidance further disenfranchises the very communities um, that that should vote, that are affected by 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 policies at the state level and federal level. And so, you know, you got to call it out. You got to call it out. I've called it out publicly. Uh, we are uh, in the in the middle of uh, spreading a a uh, a statewide. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a poll petition uh, to be able to sign by physicians and public health professionals. Dr. Mann, we should talk about this later. Um, We got to get that out, working on an op-ed. There are many things that we can do. Uh, This is, you know, nuts and bolts, grassroots advocacy uh, and organizing. And that's that's the work that we're doing right now. But you got to just call out stupidity when you see it. And this is stupid. It's a public health risk. uh, And we ought to talk about it 
uh, in plain language because there are alternatives like vote by mail. Did we lose you, Donna? No, I was muted. Oh, okay. I get fired up about this stuff. It's irritating. How about you, Christine? Yeah, so I've been a voter registrar for more than a decade. Voting and voting rights is something that's been in my wheelhouse for quite a while. So it's really very alarming to me all the things that are being done to try and limit the vote going forward. So you know, we're we're trying to take um, a, a couple of different approaches. Uh, you know, we I, I started a group of voter registrars in Williamson County, and so we've been communicating um, online with what we can do to at least get people registered to vote. And luckily, there are some resources for that. The Democratic Party in Texas will send you an already filled out voter registration card that all you have to do is sign and mail in. It's already postage paid. So if anyone is in Texas and needs that information, Texas Democratic Party is doing that. Going beyond that to vote by mail, you know, as a campaign, we're watching this back and forth very closely. We have one ruling that says, yes, you can. One ruling that says, no, you can't. The next day, yes, you can. The next ruling, no, you can't. So messaging is really, really hard right now. And I I saw uh, Pratesha's tweet earlier and haven't had a chance to um, to jump in on that. And, and that's correct. I mean, that a PDF that is that many pages tells you right there everything you need to know that it's just not safe for people to be uh, at, at polling places right now. So um, we're working through social media outlets to try and get people updated information. Every time there's a change in the ruling, we put that information out as quickly as we can. Excellent. Um, Yeah, and I will have to connect with both of you offline. Um, The NAACP actually has been working on this, and this fight has escalated right now to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they're Mm -hmm. looking for physicians to um, submit statements for their amicus. So um, Sign me up. Sign sign us up. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go to some of the questions that we have from our audience at this point. Um, what makes you uniquely qualified over your competition uh, in your district to serve in U.S. Congress? Um, Pratesh, we'll start with you. Yeah. I want to just at the very beginning say that uh, I'm running against a good man, Mike Siegel. Uh, he ran in 2018. He ran a good campaign. I don't have anything negative to say about who he is. Uh, what I would say is this, is that Um, We have got to be able to build the coalitions that we need to win. And I think what our campaign has demonstrated is that because I have a lifetime of advocacy, we're able to call on people locally, statewide and nationally who will support us in this campaign. In half the amount of time, as my opponent has, we've built a campaign with equivalent number of volunteers, and we have significant national support. Planned Parenthood has endorsed this campaign, the Giffords campaign against gun violence, the largest organization in the country dedicated to electing scientists 314 action, multiple members of Congress, and the largest newspaper in Austin. The reason why folks are getting behind this campaign is that we're not running a campaign of ideology. We're running a campaign that's rooted in pragmatism and things that we can do today to bring people and our communities forward tomorrow. That's a key distinction. We have to win to be able to make change. And Mike, Mike's politics he made it abundantly clear after the primary when asked what, what he would do to reach out to folks in, in rural parts. You know, he talks about how we need to bring out our base, but you can't, you can't win a general that way. You've got to be ready to have evidence-driven conversations with people, Republican and Democrat, uh, 
You have to earn their trust. You have to be authentic. Uh, and what I think people see from our campaign is a campaign driven by this absolute fierce urgency of now. Uh, this campaign is driven by the stories of my patients. We won't be outworked. Uh, we can raise the resources to defeat McCall. We can build the coalitions we already have. Uh, and McCall has never, ever had a competitor that is uh, as well-resourced uh, and motivated uh, with, with the volunteers that we do uh, until this year. Great. Christine, how about you, your, your opponent? So I have invested in this district for a decade. Um, my opponent is new to politics, hasn't ever run a campaign, and has not put together a team of people to give her the support that is going to be necessary in a general uh, campaign. She has no advisors, no consultants. And I know those are kind of scary buzzwords. People don't like the idea that they're consultants on a campaign. But that's the kind of thing that's necessary to win a congressional seat. You might be able to do it yourself in a, in a race that's lower down on the scale, but not in a congressional race. Um, I also have a concern that she wrote a health care policy that suggested that specialists should work as primary care doctors to fill in the gaps in the need for primary care. And when someone has a lack of understanding about the healthcare system such that they don't understand that primary care requires a residency training, you can't just pick up an ophthalmologist and set them down in a primary care office. They are not trained to do that. And if you have that lack of understanding about how the healthcare system runs, I fail to understand how you're going to be able to advocate for a healthcare system that's going to work uh, in this country. Um, so that's a concern for me. Um, the other piece of it is, is that uh, we have a vast network that we have built up through two year, uh, two campaigns that we've run now. And it, it requires meeting people over that huge amount of time to be able to win. She does not hold um, accessible town hall meetings. She doesn't, isn't responsive to people in the district. And that's a formula for loss in a general election. And I'm very concerned about giving up a seat that is a winnable seat. Um, right now, there are unmatched doctors who are looking for work. Do you have a strategy to incorporate them into practice? <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I, I read a little bit about this recently and it kind of fell off of my radar because I'm so involved in the, you know, political pieces of campaigning. But one of our biggest issues and one of the reasons we do have a lack of physicians in primary care is because of residency slots. We don't have enough residency slots uh, to accommodate the number of doctors that we need to train specifically in primary care. So we need to, uh, at a legislative level, um, create more residency slots. We need to work with the AMA and the hospital associations that run their residencies to make sure that we are opening up enough slots to have all of these doctors who want to serve have a place to go to complete their training. So uh, that that is a piece that is completely necessary as we go into this idea that we're going to cover every American. We've got to also create the workforce to be able to cover every American. 
Absolutely. Pratesh, do you have any other additional thoughts? No, I totally agree. I think that's right. We have a historic physician shortage. We need more residency slots. Let's train folks. Let's get them out in in at-risk and vulnerable communities across the country. Excellent. And uh, Pratesh, what do you think your physician's perspective adds to your candidacy? Uh, You know, we've, this is, this whole evening has been, has been about this, this (laughs) very thing, right? It is a, um, it is a privilege to be in exam rooms with people uh, and hearing that struggle in that intimate uh, level uh, that never escapes you. And uh, it, it, it fuels a fire uh, that cannot and will not be extinguished. And so I think that there is that urgency that comes with the physician perspective. And as we've talked about during the evening, um, it's this science-driven approach uh, where you can look objectively at data uh, and make object- objective decisions, right? I mean, there are studies that show that a community-driven program for families that cross the border, instead of being held in, in jail cells, uh, is equally as effective, frankly, more effective. I think it was like a 97% rate for coming back to their hearing, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the right. studies show. Now we've got to be able to assess that and then make policy accordingly. And I think that's the benefit of having science-driven training. Christine, how about you? Do you have any additional thoughts there? He 100% stole my answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's in okay. my... In my first run for Congress, I told a story about a a little girl in my practice. She was four years old when she was diagnosed with cancer, and she had a very rare form of cancer. Her family had to do a GoFundMe to be able to pay some of their bills. She was edging up on the lifetime maximum of expenditures uh, long before she was 18, and I carry those kinds of stories with me all the time. They inform my drive to make sure that we have a healthcare system that does not leave people behind, that nobody ever has to think about doing a GoFundMe ever again in the United States. That that just drives me crazy that that is what we think is normal. And we we all applaud when someone does a bake sale and raises money for someone's gallbladder to come out. no. No, it shouldn't be that way. We should be horrified that that has to happen. Um, and, and the other part that Pratesh was talking about is that data-driven decision-making. I don't have to be emotional about decisions when I've got two pieces of information that say this is more expensive and leaves more people out, and this is less expensive and it gets more people in. And what's interesting is is that on virtually every single policy you can name, the things that we have talked about in Doctors for Politics is the less expensive, more inclusive, more beneficial policy. And it kills me that we can't get policy written based on those things. And that's just, that's a huge advantage as a physician that you bring into a legislative body is being able to look at that data and make that uh, le- that legislative decision with clear eyes. Um, I'm gonna wrap us up with uh, one final question here. Um, Texas leads the nation in rural hospital closures pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Now with COVID, many rural hospitals are cash strapped. What can be done to mitigate this problem specifically, Christine? 
We did not take Medicaid expansion in this state. That was a horrific mistake that our legislature, the Texas state legislature, uh, continues to perpetuate with every session that we go into. I worked with Representative John Busey um, at the state uh, house this past session where he was the first person to ever get a vote onto the floor for Medicaid expansion in the state of Texas. It went down on a straight party line vote. I work with his um, his uh, office on a community advisory board where we are going to start lobbying people who almost lost their seats, Republicans who almost lost their seats in the last cycle to tell them how important Medicaid expansion is because they represent districts where there were hospital closures. And Medicaid expansion is the number one best thing that they can do to take money back to their districts and save their hospitals. So Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion in Texas. And then ultimately we have to do at a federal level a fix for the entire healthcare system across the country. Dr. Mann stole my answer to this one. I stole her prior answer. Uh, I I don't know how many, I mean, let me say Medicaid expansion three more times. Medicaid expansion, (laughs) Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion, right? This is, this is absolutely silly. Uh, This is an example of, of partisans in leadership uh, because of some wayward ideology uh, making decisions that actually directly harm Texas families. And so Medicaid expansion is one of it, but then we also have to recognize that there is something wrong in our health system where, for example, today we got news that Baylor Scott and White is laying off, I may have I may have misread this, but I don't think I did, 1,800 employees, laying off 1,800 employees, furloughing many others. You look at their recent filings, right? Their, their revenue is out of this roof. Uh, you have significant payments to folks in leadership in the, in, in the millions. Uh, we have got to restructure uh, how we deliver health in our country uh, so that patients uh, and their outcomes uh, is at the center, period. Uh, if we do that, we will put policies in place that keep rural hospitals afloat because it won't be about stock options. It won't be about uh, the equity or the value. Uh, it'll be about patients, uh, and and we've got to always go back for it. And I don't know any better advocate for patients than folks that work in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that is a wonderful way to close. Thank you both for joining us tonight. It was great to get to know you a bit more. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever had an opportunity to talk to other physicians in this way, <laughs> um, but I, I think it's it's unique, the platform that we provide, um, and hopefully it allows us to kind of build a community of people and to even, you know, build a pipeline eventually of people who will go um, into public service um, among our peers uh, in medicine. So thank you again, um, and we hope to see you in Congress. Hey, look, we're, we're, I'm thrilled to be here. And I think, uh, Dr. Mann, you would probably uh, uh, agree with this sentiment that we can't do it without, without the support of uh, all the doctors that are listening today. It, is, uh, it costs millions of dollars to run congressional races. And Dr. Mann and I both are primary care physicians. Uh, we can't do it alone. Uh, we need your help. Uh, if you're inspired by what you saw with us tonight, please find our websites uh, and, and, and help, help us get there. 
Absolutely. And we, um, in, in Doctors in Politics, we have one idea that hopefully will persuade some of our colleagues to contribute in um, maybe a, a novel way. And that is, if you feel like you can't um, otherwise commit budgeted salary towards uh, supporting a candidate, what you could do is to work an, after, an extra shift. So if you can donate a shift, a moonlighting shift, or the equivalent of a moonlighting shift, that could go a really long way for our candidates. Um, and we'd love to see our colleagues doing that and yep. And if you want to take a weekend moonlighting shift in Montana at a, in a rural town, <laughs> which we all know will probably do okay, then you can feel free to do that as well. And I'm sure Dr. Mann and I will be thrilled to have your support. Excellent. Well, thank you guys again. All right. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me.